Our first passage of scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 20. And we'll read the first 18 verses and it reads as follows. Now Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Secure and stayed in Gerar. And now Abraham said to his, his wife Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. She is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her and said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not also say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. And in integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her, she shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all of yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How, how have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done these deeds to me that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that I have done this wrong thing to you? And Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my, hand, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all you of all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female servants, and they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Second passage of scripture is much shorter. It is from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 and it reads as follows. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him and behold, a leper came and worshiped him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go on your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Can we say thanks be to God? So I played team basketball one year in my life in the eighth grade. And I scored a total of four points the entire season. And though I know that sounds horrible, I am incredibly proud of my four points. You see, I was a defensive player. My job was to rebound the ball, and if I got the ball, I was able to shoot it right back up into the basket. Well, the very first time my 
coach put me in was incredibly embarrassing. I mean, like it was beyond embarrassing because I got there and I was nervous and I was so insecure and I didn't want people to think that I was a bad basketball player. And so when I got the ball, rather than following what it is that I normally would do, what we had practiced day in and day out in practice, I decided that I was going to, you know, run the ball up the court and shoot it in the basket. Something I had never done in practice, like ever. And so of course I tripped, I fell, the ball ended up in the other team's hands. And my cousin who was a cheerleader on the side just couldn't let it go. She literally yells out in the middle of the stadium, Donna, what are you doing? My coach takes me out and after the game, he sits me down and he says, look, he says, I need you to play your part. He says, I need you to do your part. He's like, we all have to work together as a team. And if we don't do that, we're all going to pay the price. And what I realized is that I was so afraid of looking crazy in front of my friends that I actually ended up creating a space where I did just that, moving away from who I was supposed to be in that moment. And so that's what our sermon is about today. We are going to contrast these two passages, and we're going to look at the ways in which the two different passages show what it looks like to live an inauthentic life and an authentic life, and how that impacts our relationship with God, with self, and with others. We're going to contrast three things in each of these passages. First, the response to fear. Second, the effect on others. And third, the perspective of power. Our very first passage is very interesting, and if you haven't read all of Genesis, it is an incredibly interesting book. It is full of all kinds of juicy tidbits, and if you are not sure whether or not you're supposed to be perfect, read Genesis, and you will find out very quickly nobody is perfect. And so we start with Abraham, who is labeled as the father of our faith, and yet he clearly has struggled with his faith so often. He and his wife Sarah have traveled to the land of Gerar and they are in the land of King Abimelech. And Abraham has said to his wife, not for the first time, but many times before, when we enter into these new places, I want you to say that I'm your brother. Now mind you, there is no biblical evidence, nor have we found any other evidence to show that he is her brother at all, okay? I want you to say that you are my brother because we are entering these lands and baby, you are so fine. You're just so beautiful. And I'm afraid that these men will kill me because they want you. And so they run their little game. They've done this. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 12, they did this with Pharaoh. They're doing it here. And so Abimelech thinks that she is not his wife. And so he calls for her. That's problematic in and of itself, but that's a sermon for another day. <laughs> he calls for her, but God comes to him in a dream. And he says, hold up, Abimelech. You're about to do something that you don't want to do. It's going to get you in a lot of trouble. This woman is married, and if you do this, I promise you, you're not going to want to see what happens. And so Abimelech clearly has been engaged with God at some point because he doesn't ask who God is. He's not trying to figure out who God is, right? He is aware of this God who comes to him in this dream, and he says, hold up now. You about to, you about to put me down and I'm innocent? Hold up, God, that's not cool. I didn't do anything. He's like, I know. 
That's why I'm telling you now, don't do anything. <laughs> and so Abimelech wakes up from this dream. He sends Sarah's back and he rightfully goes to Abraham angry and upset, hurt. He's like, why would you put me in this position? Like, why would you like threaten the life of me and all of my people simply because, simply by telling me that this is your sister when in truth, this is your wife. And Abraham just keeps lying, y'all. He says, oh, she is my sister. She's just my half sister. No, Abraham, she your wife, right? And so God has said to Abimelech, this is my servant, tell him to pray for you. And so Abraham prays for him, which in my mind is a reconciling of the wrong that he has done. He has to participate in making right the wrong he had done. And the passage tells us that God took off this pallor and this, um, he opened up the wounds of the women that had been closed such that they may continue to give life. Now, Abraham was very inauthentic. He walked away from who he was. And if we look at this first point, this response to fear, everything that he did was led and guided by fear. He was afraid of being harmed. And so he was led by his fear to move away from his true self. He was not willing to face even the powers at be in his truth and take what may come. Rather, he chose to lie. Now, I need to name here that this is not the same thing as, you know, we don't tell everybody everything. Everybody doesn't, don't need to know everything, okay? So this isn't the same as, oh, I'm withholding some information from you because you really don't need this information, right? Nor is this the same as making a decision that really can determine whether or not people live or whether or not people have what they need. Like in the case with the midwives, the Hebrew midwives with Pharaoh, right, who were saving these young Hebrew boys. No, here we are talking about a man who literally is guided by his fear based solely on self-preservation. It is completely so he can save himself. And so the question for us becomes, where in our life are we guided by fear? And are those fears sometimes unfounded? Because we find that Abraham, in actuality, both in chapter 12 with Pharaoh and now with King Abimelech, both of these men actually feared the God that Abraham served and were in no way intending to cause him harm if they had found out that Sarah was his wife. Where's fear guiding us? The second thing we see that Abraham does is this has a major impact on other people a major impact on other people. Not only does he compromise Sarah in this case, but actually in chapter 12, he puts her in a position where she experiences trauma. And now that she is now experiencing this again, because this is their thing, this is the thing that they do everywhere they go. You know, for her, this is her loving him, right? Now she is in a position again to potentially be triggered. And if we go further, that's another sermon for another day. We see how this pain and this brokenness plays out for Sarah when she encounters Hagar and when she encounters Ishmael. So he literally causes direct harm to his wife through his lack of authenticity. But beyond that, he literally threatens the life of an entire nation of people. 
You all consider the magnitude of this. Our inability to be authentic, to be who we are called to be, to be who we were created to be, has the potential to create barrenness and death in other people. Even people we are not closely connected to. He just walked up into this land and these women's wounds were closed. That's a lot of power. The little boy who cried wolf, he lied how many times? Three times. For the sole sake of doing what? Appeasing his boredom. Such that when the wolf actually came into the sheep pasture, nobody believed him. And what happened? The entire village lost their entire means of livelihood. And you all, we're just talking about individual experiences now. How much more does this count or how more powerful is this when we're talking about whole groups of people who are acting inauthentically? Systems and institutions. God help us, the church. How have there been moments in our lives when our lack of authenticity have caused other people harm? The third thing is perspective of power. Abraham had a misplaced perspective of power. We have a great way of skirting around the things we actually have control over and responsibility for in an effort to try to control the things that we don't. We do that all the time, right? Abraham had the power and the capacity to be who he was, to speak the truth, while all the time, what was he trying to do? Control Abimelech's actions, which he can never do. At best, he can manipulate them, but he cannot control them. For example, I love my children. My children don't always like to share. I cannot, no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard Dedrick tries, we cannot give them or make them have the desire to share. I can, however, provide consequences when they don't and rewards when they do in an effort to teach them or coax them towards that desire. Where in our lives have we sought to control what we can't? Where are we obsessing over things that are out of our control? And what are the things that are within our power, are within our responsibility, that we just are simply ignoring while we focus on the stuff that we can't? But then we have another story, another account. When we go to Matthew 8, we find two very different scenarios, what is happening in Matthew 8 and what is happening in Genesis. I mean, you all, it's even laid out in how the passage is laid out. So for example, in Genesis 20, it takes 18 verses to tell that lying story. In Matthew 8, it takes how many? Four. Start contrast right away, right? We start being authentic, inauthentic, we got to keep going, right? Lie after lie after lie after lie. We just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. 18 verses. Let's stick with four. Lepers or leprosy was not the disease that we understand today. 
any number of skin diseases at the time could be considered leprosy. And you were declared unclean, not by a physician, but by a priest through a series of rituals. And you were then required to tear your clothes and live away from the city, either alone or with other lepers. And on the rare occasion that you were able to enter into the city, you had to go through this humili humiliating experience of covering your upper lip and calling out to people to announce your defiled presence. There was no known cure for leprosy, and therefore they were not seen by physicians. They only believed the only way a leper could be cured was by divine healing. God had to heal them. We do not know how long this man was a leper. We do not know his name. We don't even know how he made it into a public space without the proper announcement. But Jesus is coming down the hill after his sermon on the mount, followed by the crowds. And this man approaches him, and I can see the conversations just coming to a halt. People aghast at the fact that this man is so close to Jesus. Immediately, he falls on the ground before Jesus, and he doesn't even lift his eyes as he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I mean, this man risked death. He could literally die coming into a city without announcement. He risks death and he doesn't even ask for healing. He simply makes a statement. Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. Clearly, he didn't get the because we believe we're entitled memo. <laughs> Jesus reaches out his hand and touches this man's sore and pus-covered skin. And he says, oh, I'm willing be made clean. And immediately this man is healed from his leprosy. Jesus says, don't stop and tell anybody because you'll never make it, right? Bobo Nim will just hold you up. I need you to go right on down to the priest and get declared clean so that you can re-enter society properly, which would complete the healing. So you can what? Be a testimony to them. First, this man's response to fear. We know that fear has to be present because this man could have lost his life entering a public place. And yet it was not fear that drove him. Fear in this case would have kept him away. Rather, this man was led by his faith. He was willing to put his life on the line. He was willing to endanger himself in order to live into the fullness of who he was created to be. He was being guided by his faith, not his fear. Second, we find his effect on others. Jesus says to him, I need you to go to the priest. I need you to be declared healed completely. Why? So you can be a testimony to them. This man's healing literally brings life, brings salvation to other people. Testimonies are the witness that what we thought couldn't happen can. Yes? It increases people's faith where people are not even asking for healing, not even moving towards healing, people turn and say, hold up. If he did it for you, he can do it for me. <laughs> and I think it's important to note here that self-preservation -pres -pres is not the issue. It's when it's done at the expense or the pain of others when it is the issue. This man is completely authentic in who he is. He's very honest about his pain. He's very honest about his sickness. He's very honest about these things, which takes us to the third thing, perspective of power. 
This man is very clear that all he can do is go before Jesus and say, Lord, I know you can, but are you willing? It's not a matter of whether or not Jesus is able. It's a matter of Jesus's will. He has very much, has a lot of confidence, but his confidence is not in his own power. It is in God's power. He knows that God is the one who heals and I am the one to receive the healing. He has a very clear and right perspective of power. He offers his authentic self, his truth, his reality. He puts it all on the line and he says, here I am. Will you heal me? And God says, yes. The question for us then is if we are going to live an authentic life, if we're going to be authentically who we were created to be and not live a lie, do we really know what that is? There are many things that distinguish us. There are many things that, are, that make us different from one another, but there, are, there is one core thing that creates our identity, you all, and that is the imago dei, what it means to be created in the image of God. We are people created in the image of God. God. We are created out of God's love in order to be loved by God and in order to love God and others in return. That means that we are at our core relational. But God is also emotional. So we are also emotional beings. God is also eternal. We are also created to live in an eternal existence. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that looks like because don't no one knows. Let me correct my English. No one knows what eternal living looks like. But I will say this. There are some very clear things about creation that blow my mind as it comes to what it means for us to be created in the image of God. So, for example, all of matter, everything that we know as matter is made up of atoms, right? And when children are born, what happens is that the matter from one parent joins with the matter of another parent, right, in order to create life. What does that mean? That has been happening since the beginning of human life on this earth. That means that there, are, there is an essence, a part of us biologically that is connected to all of those who have gone behind us, who have come before us, and all of those who will come after us. Our bodies literally mimic the continuum of time. Atoms are energy. And quantum physics tells us that energy, what? Doesn't die. It simply transfers. So even our physical bodies, in some way, form, or fashion, has an eternal quality. But it gets better. If you take a cell, which is made up of 100 trillion atoms, one cell, put it in a Petri dish of well, let's put a, no, the brain cell. Let's take a brain cell made of 100 trillion atoms, put it in a Petri dish, it dies. If you take a heart cell and put it in a Petri dish, what does it do? It beats frantically and then it dies because each heart cell is designed to do what the whole heart does, beats. If you put two heart cells in a Petri dish, you all, they will beat frantically, but eventually they will realize another cell is there and they will begin to beat in unison. Blood is pumped to our vital arteries through, or our vital organs through our heart. Blood is the life force of our bodies. 
Love is the life force of our spirits and our souls, right? And God chose to come and redeem our souls. What are our souls? Our minds, our wills, and our emotions. Where our what? Our sense of self is located. God came and chose to redeem our souls through the shedding of what? Blood. And he does this out of his what? Unending love for us. Do you see the correlations? One life force for the other life force. You all, our bodies are living, breathing invitations to be who we were created to be to live into what it means to be authentically created in the image of God, to be steeped in a sense of security. God didn't intend for us to try to figure out whether or not we're worth it. God says, I've already, I've already erased that for you. Stop trying to figure that out. God says, even if you don't get it, your body is still going to speak it. The sacrifice I made for you will still mirror it. Abraham was all kinds of jacked up, and I'm not going to lie about that. It's right there. It's not a secret. And yet he's still known as the father of faith. God doesn't walk away from us because we don't get it right. So I don't care where you are, where you, situ where you are situated or what you've done, God is saying, I'm still walking with you. The question is, are we going to still walk with God? Let's bow forward a prayer. Hmm. God, you loved us so much that you literally gave your life for us so that we might live. And God, you wove into creation this understanding and this idea, this thought, this invitation that constantly calls us back to ourself, back to you, back to healthy relationship, back to eternal existence. God, such that we may, as a people, both individually and collectively, use the power you have given us to do great things in this world. And yet, God, so many times there are more examples in the world of how we get it wrong than of how we get it right. But God, I am asking you now in this moment in the hearts and the minds of each of us that you will fortify this truth, that just as we can see all the harm that individuals and systems can do, that we will be reminded that that is just a reflection that if we use it properly of the power that we have to do good, to heal, to restore, to repair. And so God, give us the courage to walk away from thoughts of unworthiness, to do the work, to pray, to meditate, to seek help, that we may embrace completely who we are. Meet us where we are, individually and then collectively as your church. That the love you have poured into us may overflow into the world that is still hurting and broken. May our authentic life be not just witness and testimony to others, but may it give them permission to walk the same path of freedom 
the same path of life, the same path of power. Because God, we are yours. We belong to you. And so we thank you that you are always here, always pressing, always giving. In the name of he who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever. In Jesus' name, amen.